Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for high society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. Welcome to Dan's Talks. My guest today is Eric Woodward, one of the great prominent architects in the Hamptons who's designed some of the huge mansions in recent years that uh, decorate our ocean fronts and around. And I'm a great admirer of his work. And more recently, he's become a, uh, a, a traveler by bike around the country. And I'd like to talk to him about that for a little while. But let's begin. Um, I'd, I'd like to ask you how you got interested when you were younger uh, in uh, becoming an architect. Where, where are you from? And how did, how did you decide that's what you wanted to do as a career? Okay, well, uh, thank you, Dan, for in, inviting me. How, how I was inspired to be an architect. Uh, well, uh, I was born in Belmont, Massachusetts, and my mother was a renegade. Her family was uh, from Flushing and then Bridgehampton. And uh, my uncle was an architect, and my grandfather was an architect. And so I looked up to both of them. They were role models. They were both they were both neat guys, and um, I, I liked what they did. As as a my father was a scientist, my mother was an artist. So architecture sort of combines those those two things well. And um, and they were, were both they, they they were both wonderful people. So so uh, when it came time to decide what to do, I thought, okay, well, let me try architecture. Where did you uh, study? Went to Syracuse. And which, which from from Belmont was like going out west. Um, <laughs> so. the, the guidance counselor at my high school said, "Where is that? Is that somewhere after the Hudson?" <laughs> Buffalo, near Buffalo, right? Yeah, uh, but I enjoyed it very much. I I did my my uh, fifth year, the final year of the program in London, and uh, had a lot of fun there. Well, that certainly must have been an inspiration for much of the work as out here with these great mansions are English uh, designs. Some of them have English roots, yes. Colonial. Most of what you've done that I've ever seen, um, and some some of these homes are 15 bedrooms and larger, or on 30 acres and more, are are done as the, um, in that uh, style, um, and I wanted to, how did you come out to the Hamptons? What, this was where you've done most of your work, I think. Yeah, right. I came right out of school. Uh, it was 1976. And uh, my uncle had moved his practice from Manhattan to Southampton. And he needed help. And so uh, I had a job right away. I I was also interested in photography. And I thought, okay, here's the choice. Like choice. Maybe I should become a photographer. And it was a lot easier to take the architecture route. So, 
Uh, I didn't. I didn't want to ask you to make any any names, but I thought it might be interesting to ask if if there were people uh, who uh, were either difficult or would had interesting things to say or interesting parts of the architecture that uh, came to be built uh, that you want could talk to us about. Sure. Well, one one uh, one interesting client was Rune Arledge, and Rune uh, was head of uh, ABC Sports. He yep. he he was a groundbreaker at the Olympics about how to get cameras in interesting places and really bring the sports alive. Then he went to uh, ABC News, but as a client, he he was he was quite forceful, but he never wanted to commit himself. It was always as if we were designing a set. And the set could be struck and rebuilt the next day, <laughs> um, and and he didn't realize that the house was going to be permanent. And if we decided that we were putting the kitchen over there, it was going to be over there. And and uh, but we we did get the house done. Uh, it uh, it was a success. He was very happy with it. So. Where where is it? And what town? And uh, that's in Southampton. Um, it's just east of the uh, east of the village. And uh, you know, oceanfront, uh, uh, beautiful site, etc. Yeah. What's the largest uh, home you've ever designed out here? Uh, well, there's a, it's sort of a tie, and one was a renovation, and uh, that was in Southampton Village, right on Gin Lane. It was it was a client that it was actually the second job. the The first first job we did with this client was. Uh, a uh, uh, Gene Futterman construction on the ocean, and he sold that. Uh, the way it goes, he sold it for twice what he what he spent on the property, and he he bought up to Gin Lane in Southampton. It was one of the big giant estates there, called By the Way, and so we did a pretty significant renovation. Put a put a swimming pool inside, underneath the living room in the basement. Well, it was sort of high above ground, so it wasn't totally basement. That was quite a, that was quite a trick to do with the giant, giant old colonial house, sort of teetering above this swimming pool excavation. But as you said, in terms of size, uh, that that was big. And then uh, the Cranberry Dune property in East Hampton that you mentioned, uh, uh, that that uh, that's the uh, the largest new house uh, that I've done. And I've got to correct you. I don't. I haven't actually done that many of houses of that size. Well, that's the biggest. I haven't done. I haven't done a lot of the huge. There, there's so many now uh, that uh, um, those those two jobs of mine sort of pale in comparison. Are all the projects you've done been residential? With Gene Futterman, when we uh, 1980 1986, when I was starting out with him. Uh, we did a horse farm, which was a lot of fun because we we went down to to uh, Kentucky and we had some connections to get some tours. Uh, met one of the everybody was in awe of this racehorse that we were able to say hello to, and but uh, learned a good deal about what what horses uh, want. They had a they had a, a farm manager who was helping the designs and. He said they want to be. They want air. They want to breathe. People coop them up in barns. He wants <laughs> airflow through the barns. Uh, but that's that's uh, that's the most non-residential I've, I've done. 
How many, uh, do you take on several projects a year when you were? Well, when, it, when, when, when things were really going, uh, there could be oh, 10 or 12 active projects at once, some in the design phase, some in the construction phase. It, uh, it was quite a juggling act. You have an office in Southampton, I think. Right. My office was in Southampton. And uh, for, for many years, uh, about half of my workload was, uh, was for Michael Davis. And uh, he tried to have three or four houses uh, underway at all times. And uh, he, he would continually bring, <laughs> bring more uh, clients or sites into the office. And, and uh, never, there was never a shortage of things to do. I I had uh, five employees and and uh, uh, everybody would be working hard, so we got we got a lot of work done. What was the favorite uh, project you've ever done that you're maybe perhaps most proud of? Oh well, it's a little like the scene out of the the musical Oklahoma. Uh, the the uh, the young woman was was um, she had a, a few boyfriends every 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 handsome guy in town and her father i think it was at one point said okay who is it who who's your favorite you really gotta <laughs> you know you gotta pick your favorite and she'd say oh it's the one i'm with <laughs> so it's well, I guess that makes architecture sense. You, you you focus on on what you're doing and you get really involved it's actually a hazard of architects to fall in love with what you're doing sometimes to the exclusion of the quality of the project. You think it's so great, and you don't notice that uh, maybe there are things you could be doing better. But, but uh, certainly, my own house was was uh, I, definitely a favorite in terms of I was able to, with my wife and myself, really exercise our our uh, visions and and uh, tailor it to our lifestyle and and. Um, it's a little different from most of my my jobs are shingle style and uh, that's more of what the local vernacular is shingle style houses yeah. our house was a 1928 cabin in the woods oh and so we we uh, uh, totally new interior we kept the outside but enlarged up and down uh, what's your favorite uh, what's your favorite uh, rooms or views in the house that you think are so special i can tell you those in my house so you in fact you were you've, you've seen them so what what is in, in your house that's uh, uh, thrills you well uh it's interesting we had uh it was built as a one-room playhouse 30 by 40 feet so the interior was totally open we could design from scratch uh, an appropriate interior and put the, the um, we had a design with the kitchen sort of off to the side and then a dining room and then a living room. And the day before the carpenters were going to arrive to start laying the walls, the uh, my wife said, wait a minute, we don't want to have that sort of traditional layout like that. <laughs> we decided to put the kitchen in the very center of the house. So, uh, and then this was 1982, uh, the open plan uh, life centers around the kitchen was was somewhat of a novel thing at that point. 
So from the kitchen, the center of the kitchen, you have a view toward the fireplace, toward the dining room, uh, toward a little bathroom, a first floor bathroom, toward what we call a kid lounge and toward a breakfast nook. So, so the whole thing revolves around the person in the kitchen being in the power location for the house. It's quite unique. It worked, it's worked, you know, we're still, we're still here, uh, <laughs> however many years later. And you've gone off, you've uh, become very interested in, uh, I guess, seeing the country by bike, which is kind of amazing to me as a non-athletic person. Uh -huh. uh, what, what, what was the cause of your decision to, you, you and your wife to head off like that? I'm well, um, we like bicycling. Uh, it was a common interest. You know, with couples, there's some some things that you'd like to do together, which it's important to pursue. So uh, we have two daughters and they had, uh, when graduating high school, the older one said, or uh, a couple of years into college, I guess she said, Dad, we want to ride our bikes across country. And we sort of gulped and said, OK. And so they they did it first. Oh, they, they went from Southampton to San Diego and um, not to be outdone, uh, let's see, it was, it was exactly 10 years ago now. Um, my wife and I decided, okay, we're going to do it. And we better do it now before we get old and cranky. So we did it from Anacortes, which is in Washington, uh, heading home from there, the, what they call the northern tier route. There's there's um, there's routes laid out all over the country by the Adventure Cycling Organization. Oh. So we follow follow a route, and it turned out it really wasn't. You know, it seems ahead of time like monumental. How do you do it? How do you get over the Rockies? How do you get across the plains? <laughs> right. But it was just every day you'd wake up, and it was another 30, 40, 50 mile bike ride. You know, which which is sort of normal for for bicycle. You know, people who like biking, that's not too bad. Hmm. We picked the lowest spot in the uh, in the Continental Divide. To, <laughs> Where is that? It was east of Missoula in Montana. the 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 peak, the highest point going over, is only five thousand two hundred feet above sea levels. <laughs> it's about ten thousand feet lower than Pikes. Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of other routes across the Rockies where you really have to pedal hard. Uh, did you feel different about things when you came back? Did it change you to do this? Well, I had to had to sort of recover a few things job-wise. That it. <laughs> <laughs> how, how long did it take? Uh, we spent four months, which is leisurely compared to what a lot of people, they only have a certain amount of time in their lives and they have to go like a hundred miles a day. And so we'd meet people, meet people like that on, uh, on the route. And um, in, in contrast, we, we, uh, we were averaging 50, 50 miles a day when we got into the swing of it. What are the standouts from that trip that come to mind that you were special? Certainly Glacier Park was pretty special as a, as a location. The, uh, Another thing that's just special in retrospect is to think of how many towns there are in this country. Uh, in in Montana alone, we stayed for the night in 24 different towns. Uh, you know, you 
the, the, the elite Easterner viewpoint is, oh, Montana's empty. There probably aren't even 24 towns in the whole state, but oh. no, they keep coming along one after the other. And <laughs> we'd pull into, a, we had camping equipment. We were ready because there were some stretches where there weren't places to stay um, without camping. So we were ready to camp, but we ended up only camping in, in uh, 12 out of the 100 nights that we spent. So it's sort of like travels with Charlie, but yeah, yeah. Uh, also, you were what suggested we talk about Austin Herrick because you've become interested in history as well as these other things. Yeah, a lot of a lot of my time now is researching, and and so during COVID, I decided I want to find out more about my wife's uh, great 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 grandfather, I guess. 1830s or so was when he lived and he was a whaler and um the the family used to say oh our our whaling captain ancestor austin uh austin herrick and and uh, so i went to years ago i went to um uh sag harbor library and historical museum and said i want to find out about austin herrick and they looked and they looked no record of a Captain Herrick sailing out of Sag Harbor. And I thought, uh-oh, is this, is this a family myth uh, that he was a, an esteemed captain as he'd been created out of, out of <laughs> uh, fantasies? But no, it turned out as I did more research that he did exist and he did have some interesting uh, episodes in his life. And he he sailed out of Lynn, Massachusetts, and out of Norwich, Connecticut, and that's why the Sag Harbor didn't have records of him. Um, there was a, a story about uh, a, uh, a Southampton captain getting shipwrecked in in Brazil, and the family said this was this was Austin Herrick, and I couldn't find any information about that for for quite a few years, and then finally did find two corroborating uh, newspaper accounts. Interestingly, one from Brooklyn and one from the Midwest somewhere about a, a ship that was shipwrecked uh, in, in um, Brazil. And uh, uh, Herrick was listed as one of the, the survivors. So uh, great, you know, it, he, he, uh, he does have a proud history. <laughs> so we did, a, we did a blog with the the uh, history history museum that that's on YouTube. If people are interested to look it up, where would, where would one find that? How would... um, YouTube? Um, uh, who is Austin Herrick? Would if, okay. Because the Herricks are one of the prominent uh, founding families, going back to sixteen uh, fifties and sixteen forties, even. Yeah, um, a little a little later. So they didn't. They weren't on the first boat or the second boat or the third boat. But... <laughs> Maybe sixteen seventy or something. Yeah, uh, and, it's and a big he, family tree. He lived during the era when slavery ended in the Eastern Long Island. What there was of it. Yes. Uh, that that must have been very interesting. Are you working now? You you had mentioned you're sort of semi-retired. I I'm told. And yes, I'm I'm ninety percent retired. I've got I've got one. One client left who were were still working on some permits, and I didn't want to didn't want to abandon them until the uh, till the permits were in. 
Well, tell me, tell me about that project without naming him or <laughs> some some aspect of it to give us an idea of uh, how 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 it works here. Well, it's it, life's a big circle. Um, it's it's the big job you were referring to originally uh, that I did in East Hampton, and now it's it's uh, children of my original client who are still interested in improving their their situation there. 27 acres and and uh, uh, not enough room for all of the extended family now. <laughs> they need more. So uh, I was just remembering something I thought you might an architectural uh, story it happened about 20 years. Oh, not that 2008. Mm -hmm. The uh, 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 financial business sort of collapsed. And there was, right. and there was a big mansion built by one of the principals in Southampton, not in Southampton, in Wall Street, who um, lost his company and his job, and hadn't moved in yet, and uh, he wound up having to sell it to a man he had fired, and he tore this house down that was never lived in, that was you know. 30,000 square feet uh -huh. and built his own different house on the property in the end. Uh, I guess you don't, you missed that, but I, 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 yeah, that I wasn't involved in that, but, yeah. but, but, you know, um, having lots of money does not necessarily um, uh, bring you uh sense when it comes to what you want to uh, build or live in or spend money on. There's a, there's a lot of people with more money than sense. <laughs> That's very true. Well, thanks for for being on the podcast. I really appreciate talking to you and learning. Enjoyed watching your career over all these years. And uh, some of the tales, of the architectural tales told about different projects out here are extraordinary. I had heard, uh, just in telling you this, I think someone was lying to me. Uh, when long ago, when I was first out here in like in the 70s or back back earlier, I was in Southampton in the uh, what was then called the um, social set, you know, section of the town. Yep. And they were telling me that a lot of the mansions that had been built around 1900 had been abandoned and needed to be torn down because the, the taxes wouldn't have to be paid if that were done. Yep. Yeah. And and that there was one man uh, who they named, I forget the name though, who they said could um, estimate the distance you'd have to be from it when you dynamited the house. <laughs> correctly. That's an interesting. I haven't heard that. That's interesting. Yeah. I used to hear a lot of stuff like that. Anyway, say hello to your wife for me and, and yes. uh, see you soon. You too. <laughs> podcast. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you. Bye.